their ideas were different than what he was saying. And I just want to encourage us and challenge us to know this, that Jesus doesn't come to, again, affirm what you and I think already. Jesus comes to bring light to the situation. He comes to bring truth to the situation. And the stories of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are astounding. We often think in our world, our friends just aren't convinced of who Jesus is. They can see it with their eyes and feel it with their fingers and prove these things. But listen, my friends, if Jesus showed up and walked around right now and did these new miracles, they still wouldn't believe. The problem is not sight. The problem is belief. The problem is heart. The Gospels are filled with people who watched Jesus do these flat-out nutso things, amazing things, raising people from the dead, healing things, casting out demons, doing miracles, flattening storm systems on the ocean, and it didn't move their heart to draw near. They knew who he was, but their hearts did not draw near. Scripture says even the demons believe and tremble. They know what's up. They know who he is, but their hearts are not drawn towards him. So our problem as humans is a lack of information and a wrong heart. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. So he comes with truth, he comes with life. So I want to encourage you as we read this today to to be careful, to be careful to think that our problem isn't knowledge. It is knowledge, but it is heart. And for us to be careful to listen to Christ as Christ speaks. Because the message of what Christ had to say was repent for this kingdom's at hand. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that means you're going to take Rome off our back right now. Now you're going to bring in the good times. He goes, no, no, it's different than that. And when Jesus said it's different than that, most of the people said, well, then I don't want you, Jesus. Because I want you, Jesus, to give me what I want out of you. So I would encourage us, brothers and sisters, to listen to Jesus. Jesus is preaching the message of repentance, that he comes to a world steeped in darkness, and that he is light, and he is the new and the good king, and he has a kingdom, and this is indeed where we want to be. And later on, he would unfold that if you want to be in that kingdom, you can't simply stop being bad enough or get good enough. You have to be um, worked upon, imposed upon by the work of Jesus. Jesus' life and Jesus' death has to count on yours. So you're saying, God, I want to be in your kingdom. I want to have Christ as my king, and I trust that Jesus' death and resurrection, that alone will get me there. Not because I'm a good girl, not because I'm not a bad boy. I'm a wicked person. I am. My name is Scott. I was born in sin. I was a wicked person. But Christ has saved my soul because Christ has lived and died and rose for me. That's the only way we become into his kingdom. And so we see in our text today, Jesus showing up, as Mark read, and he's walking about. The words walking about, we're looking in verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, talks about the way it's phrased, is this is a phase in time of something he's doing. He's walking around, he's doing a ministry up in this area called Galilee, which is a lot of it is a Gentile area. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Okay, so just hold on this for a second. So by looking at the, the Gospel of John and some of the parallel accounts, we learn that Jesus um, has these guys named disciples, or apostles, but right here now they're just disciples. And there's a few famous ones. There's Peter, he's famous. John, he's like Jesus' BFF. Um, there is Andrew, and there's Philip, and there's Nathaniel. And, um, and so, so we have a number of these, and there's just six more on top of that. But six of these guys show up in the front half of Jesus' ministry, and a couple of them show up in the middle, and some of them we don't know where they show up in the ministry. 
And, um, and right now we're going to see that Jesus says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, when you're reading that, as I read it for years, it sounds like Jesus does one of these incredible bold things that Jesus does. This is par for, this is par, par for the course of Jesus, where he just walks up and says things to people. So it looks like Jesus has walked up cold turkey to these fishermen in a boat and said, follow me. But when we're putting all the accounts together, we understand probably something a little bit different is happening here. This is probably an so, a, a official commissioning. In John chapter 1, we learn that Andrew, that John and Andrew uh, were originally disciples of John the Baptist. Okay, originally they're following him. And after the baptism of Jesus, John takes these two disciples, Andrew and John, and sends these disciples over to follow Jesus. No longer be my disciples, now you're going to be Jesus' disciples. So they're going to follow Jesus um, shortly after his return from the wilderness. Andrew then went and got his brother's Simon, and brought him to Jesus, where Jesus gives him a new name of Cephas, or Peter, as is translated. The connection had already been made with Philip and his brother Nathaniel, who were from the same town as Peter and Andrew. And Peter and Andrew were business partners with James and John in the fishing industry. So there's a little background. So you got like these six guys all tied up together. Four of them from one town, four of them business partners. They'd already been in contact with Jesus. But we saw Andrew in contact with Jesus. We see Peter in contact with Jesus, Philip and Nathaniel as well. And so we get to see at least six of the disciples in connection with Jesus before this moment in verse 18 where they've been coming to him and embraced who he is already. And from John 1, we know that they believe a number of things about him. They believe, these are words they use. They said, we believe you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're on that one. They call him the Messiah. You're the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. They call him rabbi, and they say, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So what we see here in this scene is not so much a first time Jesus showing up on the scene with Peter and these guys. This is Jesus' official commissioning. He is walking around as a rabbi teacher, and he comes up to them and says, it's time, boys. It's time. He's known them. They understand who he is. They put their faith in him. And he's officially commissioning, summoning them out of their boats and out of their vocation as fishermen to himself. So two things I'd like us to know, notice as we go through our title of our message today is Take Heart and Follow. The first one is this, God uses the unlikely to do the impossible. God uses the unlikely to do the impossible. These guys are fishermen. Um, and, and this is probably this is probably known to you guys, but they weren't he weren't they weren't like bass fishermen on a sparkly boat and raised seats casting like topwater lures or something like that. They are they're just in an empty boat with a big net and they're dropping it over, catching a few fish. I, in case you're wondering, I did some research on this because I'm a fish guy. Um, there are three species of tilapia that like to frequent the lake of 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 um, uh, yeah, Lake Valley. Thank you very much. So three species of tilapia and a couple species of barbell. I'll just leave it there. Catfish showed up, but that's 100 years ago. Okay, so that's what we got here. Largely a thing called barbell and tilapia. They're casting their nets out. They're using this as their industry. These guys were not esteemed. 
They weren't educated. They are as blue collar as blue collar gets. There are white collar people in the land. They are called scribes. They are called lawyers. They are called you know different different positions. But but these guys are blue collar. And Jesus goes after blue collars. He goes to them. He builds this relationship with them, and he installs them. He chooses them to be his chief lieutenants. But this is not unusual for the for the course. Check out 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. This is how Jesus works. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earth worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus, could have re- Jesus easily could have gone to the religious schools and recruited guys out of Jewish seminary. There was likely a guy in Jewish seminary right then. His name was Saul, eventually become Paul. But they've got the seminaries going on for the Pharisees, and he doesn't go there to recruit them. He instead makes a non-obvious choice. He chooses these people that have listened to him and have come to him and put their faith in him. And uh, they are very flawed, and they are very weak, and they had a lot of fear and a lot of pride mixed in their faith. So long after this has happened, they're still having these stupid discussions on the side of the road about, like, am I going to be better than you or are you going to be better than me? And, hey, Mom, hey, Mom, can you go ask Jesus if we can sit in his right hand and left hand? We just see, like, the vast flaws of these guys, right? These guys are not stellar. But it's how Jesus tends to work. Jesus chooses them, loves them, gracious is gracious with them, truthful to them, and he equips them with what they need. And so I say, likewise, for us, we can expect him to still be doing the same. We can't use our conventional metrics when thinking about God's workers. Um, you know, we, we tend to think, how do you get things done? You find the influential, you find the powerful, you find the beautiful, you find the smart. We look for conventional metrics when we think about things of this world. But when we think about God's works, we have to think about in different ways. Sure, he does use the wise, the smart, and the powerful of this world. And in this church here, we have some amazingly wise, smart, powerful people in this world, and God uses us uniquely in that way, and I'm so thankful for that. But his usual way of work is he uses the weak and the unworthy and the unsuspecting and makes them strong and makes them beautiful and makes them powerful. And he does that to make it clear on who does the work here. He does the work. The merit, the beauty is not found inherently in us. The merit, the beauty is found in him, the, the, the creator. Um, we were having a family, I'm sorry, I'm puffing his microphone. Give me some mercy here. If I puff too much, all of a sudden Wes comes up and like manhandles me up here, so I'm going to try to fix this. Um, we're having a family discussion, the whole herd of the Burns and Santas in our house, and um, um, one profound theologian in the, in the, at the table one night said, um, Everyone's happy to say they're beautiful. They're just not happy to say they're a beautiful creation. I was like, oh, that's good. Props to that young theologian sitting in the room. Um, very true. You know, we, are, we are a beautiful creation. We are made by the Lord. We have worth and value. 
But God does these things in a way that we can see and the world can see that he is doing the work and not us doing the work. And so therefore, he uses unconventional people to do that work. And so I would say, don't use metrics, don't use earthly metrics to assess God's work and ministry and who he's going to use. And likewise, I would say, don't write yourself off because you aren't all that. You don't look that great. You're not that influential. You don't feel that smart. You're not that cool. You don't have to have a good conversation. Um, be at the Lord's disposal, my sister and my brother. Be at the Lord's disposal. Let him do what he wants to do with you. Oh, but I'm just a lowly fisherman. I'm just a lowly trash person. I'm just a lowly programmer. I'm just a low, lowly whatever it is. Yield yourself to the Lord and allow him to direct you into whatever he wants to direct you into. And it might be that you will be a glorious trash em emptier who empties trash to the glory of God and truly brings beauty to this world by empty trash. Or he might make you a doctor. Or he might make you an author. And they're all beautifully glorious as he directs us. So avail yourself to him and let him direct your paths. And let him show you what is good because his good for you is the glorious and wonderful thing. Let him decide your place and function in the kingdom. So they are unusually um, ill-equipped looking for the job, but also their work is unusual. I think we can help by, by seeing the, the work that they do. The reason I mentioned that they're not like Bassmaster Classic fishermen on their boat um, and instead net droppers is there really is a difference between when Americans think of fishing and when you're thinking of commercial fishing. Um, these guys, he said, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He's not saying, I'm going to get you to cast bait out in front of people. He says, I'm going to use you to drag a net across people. The net is the gospel of Jesus Christ. These very simple blue-collar people who are unlikely candidates to be used by the Lord are given the tools by the Lord to, to do a work where the Lord does the work through them. They bring the gospel. And only the Lord knows what's going to come up in the net. Right? You spread the gospel, God redeems the souls. And so we can never, ever think that we know where the wind comes from and where the wind goes to. We can't forecast the work of the Spirit. The net is an analogy to that. So we need to trust the tools, His tools of, of work, sharing the gospel in Christ-like love. So our first piece is this. God uses the unlikely to do the impossible. God can and will use you in the salvation of souls and advancement of His kingdom. This is based upon his recruitment of you, not your pedigree, skill, intelligence, or influence. And he will use you by putting his tool in your hand, in your mouth, which is the gospel gathering message. The second thing to look at is Jesus loved them by truth. Look at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. So synagogues are kind of like church places for the Jewish people. So teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So since Jesus is the truth and light, he had to let that truth out. His primary ministry that he did walking around was a, was a ministry not of healing, but a ministry of teaching. Here it says he was teaching in their synagogues. So those synagogues, the way they were set up is they were designed to allow moving rabbis to come through and to preach messages. They would be invited to come preach messages, very differently than how we will ever do that here for purposes that are good, that God tells us. But in that time, that was the tradition, the custom. So he's going there to let the life, let the truth out. 
People don't know about God until they are told about God. And so Christ does this ministry of teaching. He is correcting people. He is coming to people that already had the Old Testament, but by and large were not listening to the Old Testament, so he's bringing clarity to this message. And again, very thematically, um, you know, sometimes if you're, if you're preaching or teaching a group and you're teaching through a book of the Bible, sometimes repeat words when you're preparing for it like, oh man, we can't. it's hard to mention that because we talked about that last week or we talked about that two weeks before. We talked about that two weeks before. One of these massive themes in this book is repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's again, this is the message. He's preaching the good news of a kingdom. So not just the good news for them, not the good news for you, but the good news, and the good news is a kingdom good news. It's a strong, strong theme. And we have to be careful as believers to be really clear what God's saying. He's not just simply saying to Jesus, hey, hey, you're in trouble, and I'll come save you. I'll come rescue you, and I'll take you home. Don't worry about the rest. What he's bringing to us is this far greater grid, this far greater worldview. That there is a kingdom of darkness, and we're all born in that kingdom of darkness. And he is the kingdom of light, and he is the good king of that kingdom of light. And he's bringing his kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness and it's really good because now truth is found and now goodness is seen and now purpose is actually found and we get to know him and love him and have him and be under his good and kind and great rule and love. But we will have to leave and forfeit our citizenship in the kingdom of darkness to have the kingdom of light. So he's bringing that message to them of this other kingdom where they would want to be happily be a citizen of that kingdom or choose the other kingdom. So the kingdom message is good. Man, the kingdom message is divisive, right? The kingdom message makes you go, you can't go straight. You gotta go left or right. When Jesus brings the good news of the good kingdom, you're gonna say, I agree. That's a good kingdom with a good king, and I want it. Or because you've now been presented with it, you're like, I hear what he says, but Jesus is wrong. That kingdom is not good. That king is not good. I know what is good. I go with the existing kingdom. The kingdom of God brings us to a fork in the road where you got to decide, is Jesus a washed up, crackpot, lying, glory-seeking fool, or is Jesus truly the good king of heaven? There's a fork in the road that you progressively have to come to, and Jesus is not shy about it. So he's traveling around early in his ministry, sharing this amazing news, good news, that there is a kingdom coming, and then that kingdom is glories and wonders and the absence of tears and pain and sorrow and we will get to experience there the full expression of his goodness upon us and we want to be there in that good kingdom so tangibly this makes us two things it makes us traitors to the kingdom of darkness so when you opt for the kingdom of jesus you have to become a traitor to the kingdom of darkness and that isn't liked very much it's not complimented you're not going to be admired for that. You're not going to be appreciated as our departure has been an insult in the separation. And tangibly then, here, this makes our earthly national citizen, citizenship an issue of temporary sojourning. So my name is Scott Burns. I'm 50 years old. I happen to be an American citizen. I was born on American soil. I'm thankful for it. Um, and because I'm a citizen, um, I'm invited into the citizen programs, right? Uh, I sent out a video Two days ago, you can find it on our social media, just trying to connect the basics of living as an ambassador to the kingdom of heaven and why I believe that should call you to vote 
in the moment that you're part of the lawmakers of this land and our voting system. Just a simple thing. I would encourage you to watch it if you haven't. But we are now sojourners. Our true citizenship is in heaven. Meanwhile, we have a second citizenship here. This is a temporary one, but we take it seriously. God's called us to live amongst the people and to do good to them and to seek their welfare and their advantage and their justice. And so we need to be true to our king and speak our king's ethic for the benefit of the people that we live in, even though we live here as sojourners. And we need to do it in a way that is clear to ourselves and to others that this is not our true home. This is not our true homeland. This is not our true king. We are heavenly kingdom ambassadors who love and engage and plead with our friends and family and neighbors here on behalf of King Jesus. So like Jesus, we must be faithful to this big picture of what Christ is sharing, that he is bringing a kingdom in which he is king and we are citizens or else we are committed enemies. Third piece, Jesus loves by deed. Look at verse 24 and 25. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics and he healed them. There's no category of thing that he couldn't cure. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So basically from all over Israel and Syria, the word was out that Jesus was who he was, saying what he's saying. He's doing all kinds of crazy miracles. And people are flooding the area to come watch him. And this then leads up to the next chapter, which is the Sermon on the Mount, where there's a pile of people. Because who doesn't want to see miracles happen, right? That's, a, that's an amazing thing. So that is how this chapter comes to a close here. Jesus is not only loving them by preaching them, Jesus is loving by deed. He's taking care of their needs. He's bringing them relief. He didn't bring them heaven at the moment. He didn't make everything all better, but he's bringing some of these people relief. And he didn't turn them into a life of leisure and retirement and laziness where everything is just fine in the new kingdom of the king. But he took them to what they really needed at the moment. He chose to give them freedom from their ailments. And so while we are unable to heal others like Jesus did. We still, like him, love in word and deed. And we serve and care for the world around us, careful to help as best we can as the Spirit leads and provides for us. The last piece I'd like to share with you guys today is just one thing I noticed out of this. Um, courage must be embraced. Courage must be embraced. I, I, could, I couldn't help but notice, th um, just thematically in here, the faith and the courage of Jesus, the faith and the courage of the disciples as they stepped out and did this. I say faith and courage of Jesus because Jesus knew what he was calling these guys to. He's calling them to some hard things. He wasn't calling them to a now life that was great. He's calling them to a now life that was full of failure and sacrifice and pain and death for every one of these guys. Jesus knew that, that if they would follow him, he would, they would die. But a much longer and better eternal life of joy, peace, power, and glory, and love in the future. It was faith. Jesus was exercising faith and calling these people. It took courage for the disciples then to leave behind who and what they were to have, to have Jesus and follow Jesus. It took, took courage. It took courage. Um, there's a, I was doing my devos out of Amos the other day, just for fun. Um, and... Um, and I ran into this passage that I've seen before, and there's these not-so-lovely ladies in the land of Israel. They're called the cows of Bashan. It's not a compliment. Um, I'll read for you the cows of Bashan. In the soil of ease that they had, um, it says this, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, 
who say to their husbands, Bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sown by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you. There's, this, there's these people here in this passage here, these ladies who just live this life of luxury and ease, right? Just summoning people to their needs. And the ease of life had moved them to greater and greater selfishness instead of the ease of life bringing them to greater and greater freedom and to love, which is what it had been designed for. I was thinking about this as I, as I was watching the news yesterday and uh, going on to Twitter and watching some of the things from Israel. Um, and it's just bar- burning my heart. I was watching that. Fr- I went and taught a, a go- some gospel seminars in town yesterday. And, um, and I'm, I, I'm watching this stuff. Where I go, and also my heart's getting so heavy, man. Because, you know, I'm going to talk about the fall and our fallen position. And, 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 like, that's just not theoretical. That's living on full blast of the news. Like, th- that stuff, them killing people and jamming them in the back of trucks and, like, stomping on their heads, whatever, that's the full fruition of this death. We think it's fun, something to play with here, but that's the full fruition of it, right? It's when it really, it's the same thing. My heart's burning with it, and I'm coming to the intersection of Thurman and Jaeger, and I look over in front of Thurman Cafe, and there's just a bunch of people all just sitting carelessly out there, care- carefree. It's, it was sweet. They don't have to worry about somebody. I mean, they might, we might have some weird shooter thing happen here, but it's not like we have enemies on the gate where you have to kind of like get inside a restaurant and hunker down all the time. There's something beautiful about the carefree, like there's safety for them. And uh, I thought, man, what a man, what a amazing blessing it is to to live in a land where we don't have to live in that. Watching these people with no danger, no fear, no hunger, no lack of shelter or safety or financial security. I mean, what a sweet blessing that is. But what what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Do we live like the cows of Bashan, who become more and more about me, me, and me, and selfish living, or do we take that safety and do we take that? And this margin God gives us to, to give to him, to ask him for his leading and ask him for his direction. It's an issue of courage. It's an issue of courage. Um, because if you don't, if it's all about me, if it's all about me, if it's all about me, uh, it ends up beginning a life of fear. And I think for a lot of us, that's what we have. We feel it. We're fearful. Some of us are fighters. Most of us are fearful. We're, we call ourselves quiet and sensible, but a lot of times it's just fear. And the solution to fear is courage. It's courage. We see it a couple times in the New Testament. Mark 15, Joseph Arimathea, after Jesus dies, he t- says he took courage and went to Pilate. It wasn't, it wasn't cool for Joseph to go get the guy that was just crucified off the cross to bury him in his tomb. He's not going get, to get compliments on social media for that. It would take courage for that, much less get killed. In Acts 23, the following the night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. John 16, 33, Christ tells us to take courage. The counter to courage is, is not fear, but settled fear, cowardice. So there's two ideas, two ideas here. A, you'll be courageous, or B, courageous full of faith, or B, you'll be afraid and stay afraid. You'll be a coward. I ran into this in Revelation 21, 8. I don't have it up there, sorry. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we're talking about hell. But strange to my ear, did you notice what happens first on the list of those people who are characterized as those who will be in the lake of fire? It says, the cowardly and the faithless. That's odd. 
All right, sexually immoral, mean liars. I was kind of seeing that one coming. Cowardly and faithless. I'm afraid. I'm afraid all the time. How do I not live by fear? How do I not become cowardly? Like the rich young ruler who's too afraid to leave his stuff behind and follow Jesus. And cowardly like the rejecting man who said no to the king's wedding feast because he didn't want to leave his wife. Or cowardly like Demas who's too afraid to love this world here that he decided it would be his love. We have the genuine threat of being faithless and being cowards if we choose to cater to our fear than rather to cater to Christ. So I'm struck by the courage, I'm struck by the faith of both Jesus and the disciples in this passage here for Jesus to call them out and for the disciples to say, all right, I leave everything behind and I will follow you. I will take courage. But it's okay to be afraid, but it's not okay to be ruled by that fear. That's what's referenced in 1 Peter chapter 3. You can check it out later. But what's the key to courage? Is it hindsight? All of a sudden you find like, whoops, look at that. I got me some courage now. Um, the key to courage is in the phrase, take it up. Take it up. So I, I've, I have a couple passages here. I'm just going to let you read these with me. But you notice, fear, courage is something that you take up. Acts 23, 11. It's up there. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Not notice you have a bucket of courage in the back of your heart. Take courage. Seize courage. Make that decision. As For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify to me also in Rome. Look at John 16, to broader disciples. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. There's a seizing element in this. For us to walk by faith and trust the Lord, there's a, there is very much the real motion of us taking up heart, taking his promises and holding on to those making a decision that we will stand with him. You know, most of us, I don't know, I'm not a lady, so I can't talk about the ladies right now, but most of us guys have played the game in our head many times. Like, oh, we're married or we're not married. Something bad happens. What am I going to do? Am I going to stand in the gap? Am I going to take the bullet? You know, all that stuff. Most of us guys, yeah, we've done it, right? You, but you know, and intrinsically, what's going to happen is you're going to just have to go for it. You're going to have to go for it. You're going to have to stand in the gap. You're going to make a decision, not because you feel like it, you're going to make a decision to lay down your life for the cause of someone else. You're going to take heart. Brothers and sisters, I would say, let's look to Jesus and look to the disciples. As they took heart and he called his disciples out, and as they took heart and they stepped out in faith to truly follow him. My, my question for you in this is this. Have you escaped, as believers now, have you escaped the clutches of fear? Or are you actually still really a coward in your heart? Does fear actually move you? Are your decisions to go and come? Are your decisions to speak and not speak? Are those actually maybe not prompted by spirit-led wisdom and spirit-led sensibility, but maybe actually by flesh-led cowardice? I don't know you. I don't know what's in your heart. I just want to encourage you to bring this out. Put it on the table for the Lord. Pray it up. Lord, can I trust you? Will I take courage? Will I take up strength? Will I take heart and follow you? And the only way I would tell you to do that is don't wait for some tragedy to happen to you while you attend some concert out in the desert to celebrate peace and you're overtaken by a swarm of things that you can't control. That's not the moment to figure it out. Now is the moment to figure it out. 
You've been listening to Jesus for a long time. Most of us, we've been listening to Jesus for a long time. Coming to church services and hear it preached. These disciples have been following Jesus, listening to him for a long time. And there's a moment when Jesus says, it's time, boys. And they took up courage and they followed him. And they followed him to the best life they would ever have, even though it meant a hard life on this earth. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, take courage, take heart, choose to jump in faith. Let the issue be settled in prayer before the Father. Tell him, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. The Spirit will help you. Jesus has gone before you. He loves you just as much now in the moment as he will love you then. That is all secured at the cross of Jesus. And might I say, memorize his promises of care so you can look to him in the darkest moments. I'm going to try to work through the church memory cards or back there would encourage you all to memorize those basic 50 verses of Christ City. I'm also trying to stick Psalm 16 in my memory right now. I'm working on it this month because I want something to, to take up. Don't take up nothing. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Memorize Scripture. Get it in your heart so you can quote it back to yourself to be a fuel for the moment that you need it. But I'm not arguing for the moment you'll need it in the future. I'm arguing for the moment you need it now. Brothers and sisters, let's step forward in the faith of Jesus, not in the courage, not in the cowardice of our souls. Let us follow Christ in his loveliness and his goodness and take courage like he did. You will need courage to follow Jesus and follow him sincerely. Have you asked him for this? Have you committed yourself to his purpose, being for the purpose of your life? What scripture will you need to memorize to allow your courage to rest upon? Let's pray. Father, be our courage. Please be our strength. Jesus, we thank you for being the one who's ultimately courageous, the one who took on earth, the one who came here, became a man, lived a hard, hard life, followed the Father perfectly, told us everything we need to tell us, despite all the opposition, and then you sacrificially gave yourself up to die for us, even though you knew we treat you so poorly afterwards, it's amazing. So I thank you for being the ultimate courageous one who left the halls of heaven and all the ease and the glories there to come and jump into the worst of what we have here and to do it perfectly out of love for us. Thank you for being the courageous one. May you please create in our hearts deep hearts of faith and trust and deep hearts of courage Fill our hearts and our minds with your word, Jesus, so that we're not deceiving ourselves. We're not wrong about how we think. So, Father, in these days of ease, please help our hearts become strong in you for your glory and for our joy and the hope of the world. And all my brothers and sisters said, amen.